Just quickly before we get started, I wanted to let you know about a free ebook I wrote a little while back called Engineering Leadership 101 Practical Insights for Becoming a Leader at Any Stage. It shows you how to grow as a leader no matter where you are in your career, the important differences between management and leadership, and it dispels some of the common myths engineers have about leadership. And like I said, it's free. So if you're interested, you can go ahead and download your copy at engineeringandleadership.com slash leadership 101. That's engineeringandleadership.com slash leadership, the number 101. This is the Engineering and Leadership Podcast with Pat Sweet, Episode 26. Sweet here, and welcome to episode 26 of the Engineering and Leadership Podcast, the show dedicated to helping engineers thrive. Today, I speak with engineering manager, small business owner, and educator, Dr. Lucas Marino, about the importance of learning and teaching for engineering leaders and how to maintain balance with a busy career. Welcome, everyone, to the show. I'm so very glad to have you along. Uh, we're in for a, a very fun episode today with Dr. Lucas Marino, just a, a fantastic human being and someone I've uh, I've really, really been excited to get to know over the last several weeks. Um, for those of you who are new to the show, welcome to the show. This, of course, is a show dedicated to helping engineering leaders and managers uh, d- just do better work and, and help their teams, more importantly, do better work. That's what we're all about here. So I'm really glad you found me, found the show. And for those of you who have been here for a while, thank you. Thank you for coming along on this journey with me. This has been an awful lot of fun. I, I couldn't have possibly imagined the support, just the overwhelmingly positive response to the show. So thank you. Thank you for being out there and supporting me through all this. Um, honestly, normally I would have a whole bunch of housekeeping stuff, but there's not a lot on the go besides the show right now. So let's dive right in. Many of us think of our lives as though they move between discrete phases. First, we go to school, then we go to work. And then we enjoy life in retirement. My guest on today's show turns that notion on its head by combining work, learning, teaching, and a zest for life all at the same time. Dr. Lucas Marino served with the U.S. Coast Guard for nearly 20 years before putting his expertise in asset management, project management, and training development to work in industry. He's currently a principal life cycle engineer for the Columbia Submarine Program, owner of the East Partnership and Marino Consulting, as well as an adjunct professor at Old Dominion University. Lucas holds a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Management from University of Wisconsin-Stout, a Master's in Systems Engineering, and a Doctorate in Engineering Management, both from the George Washington University. He also holds Project Management Professional and Certified Maintenance and Reliability Professional designations, And beyond all that, Lucas is a family man and all-around great guy. Here's my conversation with Lucas Marino. Dr. Lucas Marino, welcome to the Engineering and Leadership Podcast. Thank you uh, very, very much for being here. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Pat. I've been uh, dying to get you know, together with you and it's just sit down and hang out. So this is awesome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we, we've been connected here for a little while and we had the chance to, mm-hmm. to chat a, a week or two ago. Uh, so yeah, very excited to have you. 
Uh, we were just saying before I hit record here that there's a ton we could talk about, and I'm excited. Uh, you know, I, I could probably have you on the show three or four times. <laughs> but today, uh, what I what I think I'd like to to focus on and get into is is uh, your your work and some of the entrepreneurial stuff you do, and particularly this idea of 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 uh, education and, and professional development, which is something I know you're passionate about. I mentioned uh, the East Partnership um, in the intro, but maybe maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what the East Partnership is and, and who it's for and, and what it is you do with that. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because, you know, kind of like you implied, you know, when you talk about things that are relevant to entrepreneurship with the entrepreneur there automatically it's like a little passion switch goes on right and it's right, right. something exciting you know you're gonna you know you're gonna have fun uh talking to them about it um so yeah east is, a, is definitely a passion project it was um kind of born of a of a little bit of frustration i had about um online learning and applications to different types of um engineering and sustainment focused um disciplines right so Big, the big world of asset management that's out there that encompasses all the stuff that it takes to sustain assets. That's really our main focus. And I came up with the idea a few years back when I was working, um, helping another friend of mine with his his small business. He was getting off the ground and I was helping him out as an instructor. And we were just exchanging great ideas. And he's such a great guy. And um, we just learned so much from talking with each other. And so I was getting some mentorship from a friend of mine that was already kind of in this space that eventually I was I was looking to get into. And I was laying in bed one night, kind of hashing this all out in my head. Like, you know, it's always, it's always at the most inopportune time, right? Like I'm trying yeah. to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, boom, I had this idea about this business model. And I said, you know, I think that would work. And I talked to a few friends of mine uh, that are entrepreneurs that are in the spaces, leading consultants. And I said, if you had a friend that was also an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. that also had a passion for learning and loved to teach, but also loves this stuff we talk about, which is, you know, not the focus or the te the focus isn't teaching and it's not just advanced education. It's consulting in like, um, you know, root cause analysis or in my case, different types of logistics engineering analyses or in some of my partner's cases, uh, you know, like lubrication engineering. These aren't people that are. Are, are jumping out there to be teachers all day. They're, they really love talking about these uh, technical fields that they're in. And all of them do teach. All of them do deliver courses to their clients. And they said, you know, that sounds like a great thing to have. You know, this, this kind of group of, of like-minded entrepreneurs that function as a family. We're all friends. Um, this would be really cool. Why don't you show me what you come up with? So I spent a couple of months doing some research and getting my platform established. And, uh, and and letting the business model kind of come together a little bit and gel a little bit more, <clears throat> excuse me. And it all just started clicking. And our, our primary goal is to deliver training, whether it be in uh, on-demand format or through hybrid or even live webinar uh, formats, but it's all computer-based. Um, and this was all pre-COVID, by the way. <laughs> so it's kind of fortuitous, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Um, it, and it's it's geared toward uh, people who either manage or maintain or everything in between uh, complex assets, right. you know, physical assets. And that was kind of just our niche thing. It's it's 
the the other niche part of it is that it's purely entrepreneurs that that are subject matter experts in these fields and and this is all they teach about so we're not like just this open book where we're bringing in people to teach uh you know math to sixth graders just for a random example right even though i would love to do that right that's not right right. that's, that's not what we do right so yeah we kind of slowly started building out these individual lines and I worked with each of these partners and said, Hey, let's just kind of ease into it and see how it goes. And the more we worked with it, the more we loved it. And that's kind of how we got started. So uh, it's, it's this, it's this platform that you've created and you bring in experts in this, in this really, you know, uh, so, some niche subspecialties within the world of engineering and systems engineering. Um, that, that's really, really cool. And, and this is something that, that I've noticed too, is that with the, proliferation of online courses that there, there are a lot of places you can go, but once you get to a certain level of, of, uh, of detail in, in these, in these niche areas, you, you can't find anything. It's really, really tricky. Um, so, so I think, I think you're absolutely filling a, filling a need there. You said something really interesting there, just the, the bit about, um, you'd love to teach math to sixth graders. Like that would be, that would be really cool. Yeah, right. That'd be fun. And I think, I think that speaks to uh, something that, that I, I really admire about you is your passion for teaching in, in all forms. And I know you, you, you are, um, you teach at, at uh, university and college level. Um, but you, you're also a practicing engineering manager. So I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to hear about this, this link, how is how is being a teacher, both both professionally and in mindset, right, affected you as a manager? How does that manifest itself? Oh, it's been wildly. Uh, uh, how do I say this without sounding strange? It has been so fulfilling that I've been unwilling to let go of it. Right. Which is, right. you know, you usually find yourself going, "These are really hard things to do." Like it's time intensive being an engineering manager in a very large government program, right? And I'm I'm managing a, a very large project and there's way too much stuff for us to research and do than we have the resources to do. And that's kind of the nature of engineering management, right? It's like, right. and so you can easily just be like, all right, I've got to cut everything else and just do this. But I literally sacrifice nights every night to do what I also love to do. And um, the other night, I was, and I'm not encouraging this, this behavior. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the caveat. It's That's great. Healthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no two ways around. It's not healthy. I get it. And I can't do this all the time, especially as I get older. Cause I'm, I'm in my, I'm well into my forties now and it's not the same as when I was at 25. Right, right. right. So, you know, the other morning I was, I was up working till four 30. My wife comes downstairs and I was, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I was like, I'll beaming. I'm like, Hey, just wrap this thing up. And she's like, you need to go to bed. You're, you have to work in like two hours. I'm like, yeah, I might not. And you know, I just might just keep going because it might just be less painful. <laughs> to just keep going. So, you know, but why is that? You know, I told, and so I, I talked to a friend later on that day. He goes, dude, you're crazy. Why did you do that? I said, you know, I went to bed smiling. Mm. It, it may have only been for two or three hours, but I went to bed so satisfied. I do it again. And it, it really becomes like, I, I feel like, you know, you, you first experience this when you, when you enter, I guess, real adulthood, when you leave high school or whatever type of uh, education path you have as a child, 
and you enter into the into the university age or go into a trade school or or go start a career somewhere that doesn't involve either of those two things, whatever, you know, you're going to get out on your feet as an adult. You feel this tremendously depressing uh, experience where you don't really know what you want to be. And you feel like if you make a decision, it's going to be the, it could be the wrong one. You may not be fully satisfied. What if I find something else that I love? And I've just refused to, to just pick one path. I'm like, I'm going to do both of these things. I love teaching. I also absolutely love what I do for a living. So when I first experienced that, when I was a technician, I was in the military as a diesel mechanic, I was an advanced diesel mechanic. And I got assigned to the engineering and weapons school for the Coast Guard as an instructor. And I got to teach this engineering stuff I was doing, this, you know, this, this trade work. And I loved it. Mm-hmm. And it just took my love for learning and rolled it into what I call learning. It's, it's application of learning, right? It's like you can read and absorb material all day and be a student. But teaching it is like the application almost of, of a, like some dimension of learning that actually helps you learn more. Like I became better at my trade by teaching my trade. Yeah, of course. Of course. I, I, I've heard that too, is the best way to learn something or, or the best way to confirm you've learned something is to go and try and teach it to someone. Oh yeah. And stand up to scrutiny. I mean, I used to teach, you know, as a senior petty officer, which doesn't mean much to people outside the military, but I wasn't the most senior enlisted person that would ever sit in one of my classrooms. I was teaching people several ranks above me at times. And I knew that I had to have my stuff together because if I went in there and was teaching and it was coming off wrong or half cocked or whatever, some old crusty senior chief was going to call me out and he was looking forward to the opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) So you really have to like master your coursework. And, um, and then I realized, you know, later in, in life, you know, I had to let that go for a while because I was on ships for a long time and you just don't get to do both. And I had to concentrate on my own learning and getting my degree. And, you know, so whatever, 15 years later, I had the opportunity to teach again. I just, I just jumped on it and I was helping my friend with his business. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, excellent, excellent group of people. Many shout out to PM ProLearn, excellent project management uh, training organization. That's a small business started out at a guy's kitchen table. It's insane how, just how really good they are. So that's why, you know, testament to their success, but I was helping fill in the gaps where they didn't have an instructor while I was an engineering manager. So I would take leave and go fly across country teach a class for a week, come back, tell my employer, Hey, I'm back. Thanks for letting me burn a week of leave. Made a little money, helped a friend out, got to do something rewarding. And I thought, man, this would be really cool if I could do this all the time, but I can't afford to travel, you know, a thousand miles and burn all my leave doing this. So it became like, I I got, I did get to a tipping point where I had to decide one or the other or change the approach. And that's why I kind of you know, stumbled into this model with, with these partnership. Right. Right. So, so this is something I, I really want to dig into because I think, you know, so, so some of the most prevalent career advice out there in, in the ether today is about the importance of finding passion in your work, uh, which, which makes sense to me. If, if your work is complete drudgery, then you're probably in the wrong, you're probably in the wrong field. Now, that that kind of has a, a dark side too, though, doesn't it? Is if you're incredibly passionate about your work, it can be hard to put it down to the detriment of sleep, for example. I'm just pulling that out of the air, right? Or income. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so in your own experience, um, 
how do you draw that line? How do you how do you tell like enough is enough? I do love this, but heck, I miss my wife. I miss my kids. Sleep is something I'm going to need at some point. How do you how do you balance that? Yeah, so I I you know although I use the example of like working through the night, I don't traditionally or I don't normally do that, right? Like that's not like a regular occurrence for me. It was when I was getting my doctorate. It was every week, but now that that's over, I said I'll never do that again. Right. So I'm not repeating the sins of the past anymore. I've got enough experience to say I can do this and I'll survive, you know, but I can only do it so much or I'm going to start to cause issues. And so having that experience when I was getting my doctor, it really kind of informed my thinking now. It's like, okay, well, I can afford to do that every once in a while, but that's not good work life balance. That's not good personal health. That's not good habit forming. That's, that's really bad stuff. Right. So, um, so I really, uh, depend on my wife, honestly, uh, in large, uh, in, in, to a great degree, because she's watching me, she's feeling, you know, she's running the house. I'm just head down rolling and for better or for worse, you know, the brakes are kind of not working great. So Mm -hmm. she's, she's the e-brake. She'll, she'll tell me, you know, Hey, uh, you look really tired. (laughs) And I'll say, yeah, you know, I've been doing this and doing that. You know, this this weekend's an example. I mean, if you could see the outside of my house, you'd think I, I was some maniac. I've got trees everywhere. We've been spending two weeks ripping down trees and we still have to process them all. And yesterday I said to my wife, hey, I'm going to go rent a chipper and start chipping. And she goes, yeah, how about you don't? Yeah. How about you don't touch a tree for a week and just do something else and chill because, you know, you're not looking great. <laughs> <laughs> well, how great is that? How great is that to have someone in in, in yeah. your life to 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 have the courage to to call it the way they see it, and for that to be yeah. your your spouse um, yeah. to to help keep you accountable is is I, I, I think great. I think great. It, yeah. it reminds me of a of a story I heard recently. A fellow named Michael Hyatt, who's one of my uh, favorite authors, he's got a, a, a book coming out um, on on this topic on on balancing. Uh, winning at work and succeeding at life, and and you know how do you how do you have it all? Anyway, he tells this story about uh, having an executive coach who asked Michael's permission to call his wife to make sure that he really was doing the things he was committing to: closing down yep. the laptop at six, not taking work home on the weekends, and that worked. It it, it wouldn't necessarily work in every relationship, I'm sure, but in in that <laughs> instance. It, it did, and I think that's a that's a really good lesson learned. Is there are times where someone else's insight into your life and the way you're working is much better than your own. I think yes. I, th- I think it's great. Yeah, and and so you know, if if it's not your spouse, it could be a friend, it could be a coworker, it could be somebody. I used to do this for a friend of mine that I commuted with every day. We both commuted in and out of Washington D.C. for for jobs that really arduous like mentally arduous, not physically arduous jobs mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> on the chief uh, engineer of the Coast Guard staff. And so we were really dealing with important and difficult things that can really just sap the life out of you. And we would drive in a car together anywhere from two and a half to four hours a day. Right. And you really get to know somebody. And um there were times when we'd be driving home and I'm like, dude, I watch you work all day. I sit in the car and let you vent. You're, you need to, you need to breathe, brother. You need to take a break. Um, and he would say, yeah. And of course it was different coming from me than it would have been say his spouse sure. who, you know, he's got, you know, he's listening to each of us differently. Right. 
So to your point, you know, it's great to have that relationship with someone. Um, and if it's your spouse, that's great because that means that you, you also have respect for their opinion on your personal or your, your professional, uh, health, not just your, your, you know, your marriage. Um, and for those people that don't have someone there, think about, I mean, we're, you know, I'm a systems engineer. So think about this from, from a functional standpoint, mm-hmm. like you're just looking to satisfy a function. I need some way to measure how I'm doing and whether I'm redlining, if I'm within normal operating parameters, if <laughs> I'm, um, I'm functioning as designed, you know, like right. I need to validate where I'm at every once in a while. So you have to find a way to look at it in a way that works for you. Like if you have to have, I used to set up power hours in the morning where I would just grind through an hour of work related to my small business. Mm-hmm. And then I wouldn't touch it for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. And that was one way for me to seek balance. I, I got the productivity I needed that week to satisfy my personal desires for how much I'm doing. I didn't have guilt at the end of the day saying, ah, I didn't get to touch my small business stuff today because my, my you know, really time-consuming engineering management job just didn't let me get there. You know, I didn't, I didn't have that problem because I set up that time. I dedicated that time and I wouldn't let anything else interfere with it. And it was prior to uh, any, any uh, engineering management investment for the day. Right. You, you set those boundaries, right? And it was clear in your mind what, what was good, uh, what was good enough, what made sense. And then that gives you permission, right? Both to yeah. do it and then later in the day to let it sit because you know that next time is coming. That's, uh, that, that's really powerful. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. And the, and the other thing is I employ a lot of agile project management type approaches to my own management of myself, you know, because I feel like that's a little bit more in tune with like how a, an individual functions, like when it comes to managing your own schedule and stuff. So I keep a, I keep a Kanban board. Um, and if my, if my friend and, and coworker, Katie Castell, Dr. Castell is listening right now, she's probably falling out of her chair laughing because <laughs> this is something we comment on about, you know, I keep a Kanban board and I manage my life on this Kanban board. And so I can look at the, the depth of the, um, you know, the doing list and go, I put too much on the plate. Right. This thing's been sitting there for a week or two and I haven't even looked at it. That's got to go back on the backlog, you know, and it helps me kind of organize the volume because I think oftentimes we focus on time you know, because time is a, is a fixed measurement <clears throat> and it gives us something to reference. But the quality of that time is really sometimes the thing that we don't observe um, to the degree that we, we should, right? Like to me that the quality of that time is really what provides the value to the time measurement, right? So if I say, well, I spent an hour working on something, but was it a quality hour? Was it, did you produce anything? Did you achieve the goal you had set for that hour? You know, doing that board doesn't break it into a schedule, but it does give me like in my brain, I'm registering, I'm estimating how long it's going to take to complete that task. Mm -hmm. And if I think it can be time constrained, I'll assign a deadline to it and it'll, it'll flag in the system. And I, and I try to make even routines with that. So if I'm going to say, I'm going to create a product that I create frequently for my business, right? I'm going to, I'm going to time box all those things. I'm going to put some organization around them because in mass, the 30 of them will seem uh, really hard to manage if I don't. Right. And if I put time constraints on each of those and say, I give myself a week for that. I give myself two days for that. I, I do that with that type of task every time. Now my brain starts to, you know, fall into a little bit of a routine and a functional uh, schedule, even though it's not like I've got 
notifications popping up on my computer all day or something. It's, right, it's, right. It, it's up here. Um, and that helps me organize that stuff as well. So I could, I could measure myself against a tool like that. Should I not have someone else? Right. I mean, if I'm looking at my, my Kanban board and I say, geez, this thing hasn't budged this week mm-hmm. and I feel like I've been working on it. I, I messed up when I estimated what I should put on my to-do list. Right. I need to recalibrate how I, how I work in that regard. Man, we, we, we could record a whole episode on, on uh, Agile for individuals, right? That's, <laughs> that's something I, 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 think, I think could have a lot of legs. Um, a lot of non-software people might, might not know what the Kanban yeah. boards are. But, but uh, maybe you, did, did you want to explain that uh, briefly, just, just for someone who's maybe not familiar with, uh, with Kanban? How you yeah, set that up? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this super generic explanation. So for all you agile purists out there, do not email me or call me saying, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> so if you're just completely unfamiliar with a Kanban board and you're thinking, what the heck is this guy talking about? It's literally like, imagine you just have a whiteboard in front of you and you're going to create columns. And each of those columns has, has a, is, is an organized approach to the work you put in that column. The backlog is exactly that. It's things you plan to do in the future. And you can just throw everything you plan to do on that Kanban backlog. And then after you have it built out, and by this whole thing's a living document, so it's never finished, right? So after you've listed all the individual things in that backlog, you can prioritize them. And so every week I re-rack or every you know few days I'll re-rack my backlog to move the higher priority items to the top. And then what I'll do is I'll pull items off the backlog and put them into the to-do list when I'm ready to start focusing on them. And on the to-do list is all the things I have to do, right? That's the actual work list. Mm-hmm. And if that to-do list is way too big and I'm not touching the things on the bottom of that to-do list because I'm constantly moving the higher priority items to the top, then I'll push them back over to the backlog. I'm not ready for them yet. I'm not touching them. Right. So I may have intended to do something, but I'm not. So let's be realistic, push it back to the backlog. It may even go to, to the middle of the backlog. I may find it wasn't as important as I thought it was initially. And then from the right, you know, so I've got the backlog and then I've got my to-do list and then I've got a stuck pile. Right. Things I dove into and I went, wait a minute, I can't do what I thought I was going to do. I need help from somebody. I need a new resource. I need to invest in this thing. I'm going to put it in the stuck pile. And that gives me the ability to see it and think about it and take action on it. It's not just sitting in the backlog, Mm -hmm. right? It's still active. I'm just not able to move because of some external influence. And then beyond my to-do list, I have a done pile. And let me tell you how important the done pile is. If you're weird like me and you get a little tiny adrenaline kick from going, this thing's done, check in a box, move from the to-do list to the done pile. That's like a huge little win for me. And I don't like consciously think about that, but I know that about myself. So this works for me because I can say, yes, move to done. And it moves over there and I get this tiny little sense of satisfaction and I get a little bit of motivation to go move something else to the done pile, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then beyond the done pile, I actually have like this weird purgatory pile. It's things that I didn't necessarily know if I was going to ever accomplish them. They were ideas I had. I'm not sure if I'm going to ch- chase them. They're not necessarily mature enough or I haven't thought them through yet enough to put them on the backlog. It's like, hey, this is something I'm going to eventually do. So I've got a couple of those boards, you know, like potential partners, um, potential course topics, things like that. I just haven't really hashed them out. I'm going to think about them a little bit, let them mature. 
Um, and I just leave those stacked in individual like um, columns as well. Things that I'm not necessarily backlogging, but I just need to think about. And I, so I can organize my life a little bit, prioritize things um, on this Kanban board. And it's really an easy, uh, simple to use tool. I will, I will recommend one tool. It's free. It's Trello. Oh, great. Trello yep. is yep. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Really, right? really good. Really good. Yep. Yeah. Love it. So Kanban board, really in- intuitive, uh, you know, inter- user interface is, is really great. So. Yeah, perfect. I'll, I'll and I'll I'll absolutely be putting uh, a, a link to that in the show notes, in, in case anyone's interested. Um, I want to I want to touch a little bit on something you you brought up earlier, and that and that was you having done your doctorate, and uh, I, I know you did your your doctorate in engineering management at George Washington University. Uh, for those who are listening who are maybe not familiar with uh, a, what a doctorate in engineering is compared to a to a, a more traditional PhD. What's the difference between the two, and why did you why did you choose the uh, the doctorate in engineering? Yeah, great great question. I'm glad you asked it because I, I was uh, asking the same question myself when when my university introduced it to me. Um, I thought they were just trying to get more money from me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, why don't you keep learning? Take right. more classes. I hear the really expensive ones. You should take some of these, right? Um, so. Uh, uh, an advisor of mine on my master's program, because I did my master's at George Washington in systems engineering, and I actually split my coursework between systems engineering and engineering management. They're in the same department. Um, and I just leaned a little bit more heavily towards systems engineering and, and, and got the, the more technically focused degree because it was the master's level, and that's what the Coast Guard <clears throat> was really paying uh, me to do. So um, I, I was in the program, and my advisor for my my master's capstone came to me and said, Hey, you should consider continuing on and going into a doctorate. I looked at him and said, you're crazy. Uh, now I'm good. And he said, no, really, I, I know you have a passion for teaching. One day you might want to do that. And I think you're just crazy enough to think like outside the box all the time, but in a beneficial way, I think you, you would be good. And I said, okay, I'll think about it. And I didn't talk to him for a year. And a year later, he called me and said, hey, you should, you should really look into this. We're accepting applicants. And that's when I really opened up the program and looked at both uh, side by side. I actually applied for both the PhD and the DNG um, and figured they'll, they'll help me figure this out. Right. And the, the Doctor of Engineering is, is an applied degree in engineering at the doctorate level, um, which is a little less theoretical than like the PhD. And that's one of the reasons why the PhD is more traditionally um, uh, found in academia, right? And the the DNG is a practitioner's degree. Mm-hmm. And so the way, and I thought George Washington was brilliant in doing this. They they realized that we need both. We need people that are hardline academics, and we need people that are practitioners that also have that um, PhD type degree, but it's it's focused on application, right? And so my praxis. Uh, was a it's a dissertation just like a phd dissertation but rather than being focused on uh pushing your discipline into a new area of theory you're you're pushing your discipline into a new area of application so i had to find a real world problem that had not been solved either well or at all um or you could come up with some some new novel way to solve it that hadn't been um uh, taken yet develop a solution and all this had to be doctorate level thinking and research. And I mean, I had to do a research project. And I mean, I spent two years just 
you know, swimming and level of repair analysis stuff, which for those that, you know, haven't had the joy of that yet, (laughs) it takes a lot of thinking because you're like, oh my gosh, if I talk about one thing anymore, I'm going to go crazy, right? Um, And you're just reading nothing but academic papers and and jotting down new ways of thinking about this thing. But really it, it was, it was extremely rewarding um, because it did for an engineering manager, it was, it was very rewarding to say, I didn't just get smarter on my discipline. I didn't just dive deeper into systems engineering or, you know, dive deeper into some application or some element of, of engineering management. I actually got to do that and solve a problem for the place that employed me. So I, I fixed the problem for the Coast Guard that was worth millions of dollars. And it was something that was a real problem. It felt different to me to solve a problem that we were actually experiencing through my research. So the times when it got really difficult, when I was like, man, I don't know if I want to keep doing this or, you know, you're just starting to have doubts because you're investing so much time and energy into it. And you know that it's taking away from other things in your life. Um, That's when it was like, no, we're going to solve a real problem here. This is, this is important. So that was the biggest difference between the DENG and the PhD was the time in seat uh, for research is a little shorter for the DENG, Mm -hmm. which can be a blessing on paper and an absolute curse in reality because it was foot on gas pedal to do all that research in two to three years. Right, right. You know, and um, I think a lot of people that are more practitioner focused than, say, uh, theoretical, you know, uh, junkies. Um, they had a hard time with being told your solution's not good enough. Uh, I know you're an expert in your field, but I'm not buying it. Um, you know, all the things that come along with applied research, you, you're trying to convince someone that knows nothing about what you're doing or very little about what you're doing, that what you're doing is great. And they're just like, yeah, I don't see it. And so I saw a lot of people that were very frustrated with not being able to get over the approval to do research. Um, I was ecstatic. Once I got the green light, I was super happy to go into the research phase. The first phase is all coursework for about a year. Um, because to me, I was like ready to get to work. I was like, let's go. Let's let's start digging into the problem. And I got my approval to do my research. Um, from there on out, I was I was just, you know, face down solving problems. So if you're that kind of thinker and, and worker, uh, definitely look into the doctor of engineering. And post-award uh, post, uh, uh, of my degree, I had an immediate... Uh, recognition of the value of my education. I was thinking differently about problems. Uh, people were asking me questions that they may not have come to me for before. Um, you know, there's always the the business aspect of saying, hey, hey, we've got this doctor, you know, you know, companies love to be able to do that. But there's also a stigma that comes with that that you have to kind of overcome. You're like, hey, I know how to actually solve this problem. Right, right. <laughs> I didn't yeah. just read a book. <laughs> It is, you know, it is this strange, the, it is this strange phenomenon where, yeah. um, uh, folks with more academic bent are, are occasionally treated with a, a degree, a degree of, of, of skepticism, uh, yeah. in, in industry. It, it is, it, it's, it's strange. Yeah. And I work with the government. It's very prevalent in, cause it's roll your sleeves up kind of hard. I mean, we're designing some of the craziest stuff in the world, you mm-hmm. know, like a nuclear submarine is a very complex thing. And you go talk to some of these people who have been doing nothing but that kind of work for 30, 40 years. You know, they're look, they they put extreme value on experience. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing that they looked at academics, you know, probably lack is the experience, time in the trenches kind of thing. You, you might have 10 years of experience in research, but 
how much of you have you actually had to go out and apply an industry report to this type of hole? So I do endeavor to show both sides of my experience every chance I get and not in an annoying way. I tell them, hey, you know, I had a, had a meeting with a client uh, this week where they were like, hey, here's Dr. So-and-so. And I immediately wanted to squash the, hey, just so you know, I was a, I was a port engineer working with the same thing you're looking at for a decade. And they were like, oh, that's great. You know, they, they can see that you've got something to bring to the table besides uh you know, just, just smarts. You've got, you've got some, some time getting dirty as well. Right. Right. Uh, Lucas, l- like I said, I, I feel like we could talk for, for hours here. Um, and I, 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 I can almost guarantee I'll, I'll be having you back on the show <laughs> at some point in the future for sure. Um, but in the meantime, if people, uh, are interested in, in you and your work, uh, maybe you want to check out the, uh, the East partnership or, or, uh, anything else, where's the best place for people to go? Um, yeah, so the best place to reach me is on LinkedIn. Uh, I've kind of, you know, posted my flag there and said, I'm, I'm not going to spread myself too thin. This is the one place I focus on trying to produce content. And so if you come to LinkedIn, you're going to, you're going to get access to, to, to most of my content. And also, you know, you can, you can just contact me directly, which is, you know, to me, awesome, because I'm all about networking and building a network. That's to me is I'm a social butterfly. I like the, the, the interaction. Um, East Partnerships uh, website is eastpartnership.org. And um, we, we do, you know, obviously uh, interact with, with students and learners there, but it, it's mostly, you know, exactly that interactions between us and learners. So if you're looking to interact outside of the, the learning environment, LinkedIn's the best place. Okay, that's awesome. And I'll, I'll absolutely be putting links uh, in the show notes, both to uh, East Partnership and your LinkedIn profile. Uh, again, Lucas, an absolute blast. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me, Pat. It was, it was awesome. Lucas, thank you so much for all of that. I always feel pumped after chatting with Lucas. He's just, he's got this infectious energy about him. And that's just, it's great. It's just fantastic. One thing that stands out to me from this chat was Lucas's embracing of what Jeff Goins calls a portfolio life. Really good book by Jeff Goins called The Art of Work, something that uh, is definitely worth checking out. Lucas has given himself permission to pursue all the things that make him happy, and I'm personally really inspired by that. Of course, he's made sacrifices along the way, and at times, as he explained, overextended himself, but that's okay. A good life and career isn't about never veering off course and making mistakes. It's about doing the right thing when you catch yourself having veered off course, and he's absolutely done that. He's absolutely made every effort to right the ship when when things have gone, maybe not 100% according to plan. Thank you once again, Lucas. It was an absolute blast having you on the show, and I can definitely see myself having you on the show again in the future, so do stay tuned for that. Next up, we've got the Engineering and Leadership Mailbag. Well, my friends, you know how this works. This is the part of the show where I read your messages and answer your questions. I promise to read absolutely everything you send me, and I promise to share my favorites here on the podcast. There's a really interesting note from Paul DeBoer, who wrote to say, listen to your podcast for the first time, very much like it. Need to better connect with my engineers and create a positive culture within. Thank you for these podcasts. Paul, thank you very, very much for the note. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. And this, uh, this, this challenge that you have with respect to connecting with your engineers and cre- creating a positive culture, 
That's a tricky one. And that's something that a lot of leaders, a lot of managers struggle with. This is not something that you learn in engineering school. And more often than not, comes from just a hard lived experience as a manager. But there are a couple things that I might recommend, a couple things that I do in my practice as a manager. Um, Obviously, with the COVID-19 pandemic, both of these things are harder than usual, and they're already tough. So here are a couple things that you can do today, uh, regardless of where things stand with the pandemic. These could be helpful. Two things I'm doing right now with respect to connecting are one-on-ones and office hours. One-on-ones are simply that. It's a dedicated time. Every and, and you can choose the frequency. Right now, I've got a, a large team, so I'm meeting with each individual at least a half hour a month. Um, ideally, it would be more than that, but uh, the, I do have interactions with my staff, most staff, every day or every other day. So it's not like I'm going a month without talking to people. But but having that dedicated time where the whole point is just to connect, not not even necessarily to talk about work, but but to connect uh, on a personal level. That I find is incredibly important and incredibly useful in terms of, of just building relationships with people. The other thing I mentioned is I have office hours. Now, like, like I said, I've got, I've got a large team. In, in fact, I've got a couple large teams that I lead. So one of the challenges that I was having is getting enough time in with people to to solve kind of those those day-to-day challenges, provide guidance and give direction. So one of the things I did is I started having daily office hours. It, it's a lot like when you went to university and your professor couldn't possibly have met with each one of their 200 students in, in Physics 101, right? So what do they do? They set up office hours, a dedicated time on a regular basis where people could drop in and chat. And it didn't have to be overly structured, didn't have to be overly formal, but you knew there would be that availability. So this is what I've done for myself, is I've made myself available um, four or five days a week in the afternoon to to just be there and chat. And most conversations end up being five, ten minutes. It's not really a big deal. But I'm able to connect one-on-one with a number of staff rather than the alternative, which would be, you know, schedule a half hour meeting with me, whatever you can find an opening in my calendar, which, which these days is very challenging. And I'm sure that's not just me. I, I get the sense that that's for managers all over the place, right? So blocking out this time to talk to staff and help them through their their daily issues is incredibly, uh, A, it's, it's, it's valuable in terms of moving work forward, but also valuable in terms of being there for your people. And connections come through that. So, so that's that's something uh, I, I would highly recommend. The other thing that you talked about is the importance of building a positive culture, and that too is very important. Um, a couple things that you can do as a leader with respect to building culture. It doesn't have to be all that complicated. It, it does have to be maintained over the long run, though. And the ideas I had here were to be positive yourself. Don't descend into, you know, the the whinging that often happens at the coffee maker kind of thing. You can choose whether or not you complain about things or whether or not you see opportunity in, in the challenges of everyday work life. You can be that positive person. You can, through that behavior, give others permission to be positive. It takes some leadership to to actually make it okay, to make it culturally acceptable to be positive. But you have to be that person. You have to take that first step. 
And then the other thing that I would recommend is making a point of recognizing great work. Again, no one has any problem mentioning when things go off the rails, when things are bad. People are, are, you know, feel like it's their job. Managers in particular feel like it's their job to fix mistakes. And and there is a degree of truth to that, right? You, you do need to catch issues and solve them. There, there's no doubt about that. But why not also make it your job to recognize great work and to recognize your people and to show what right looks like? This is something you can do. This does not take any special training. Um, and, you know, a quick Google search will give you a thousand ideas on how you can genuinely and, and enthusiastically recognize your people. Start doing that. You can start doing that today and see what it does, especially over the long run. See how that changes the way the team views work and being positive. And I think you'll find that, that some magic really can happen. A quick reminder that if you'd like to be on the show, you can leave a voicemail at engineeringandleadership.com slash contact. I'd love to know what you thought of today's show. Any comments, questions, ideas, please do reach out. Again, that's engineeringandleadership.com slash contact. That, my friends, is all the time we have for the show today. Thank you once again to Lucas for joining me on the show. This was a lot of fun. Like I said, we'll definitely be having Lucas back. I'll be back next week with our next episode where you'll be hearing from Vivian Shen about her journey to becoming the CEO of one of the world's fastest growing online learning platforms, Juni Learning. If you enjoyed the show, it would be awesome if you could leave a review on whatever podcast service or device you're using. I'd love to know what you thought was most interesting about today's show. And if you do leave a review, I will absolutely feature you in the mailbag. And it has the added benefit of helping others find the show as well. So that's win-win. That's great. For more information and links to resources mentioned today, just go to the show notes at engineeringandleadership.com slash episode 26. Until next time, this is Pat Sweet reminding you that if you're going to be anything, be excellent. You've been listening to the Engineering and Leadership Podcast with Pat Sweet. If you'd like to learn more, go to engineeringandleadership.com where you'll find more free articles, podcasts, and downloads to help engineers thrive. That's engineeringandleadership.com. Yeah.